And now on WRS, Michael McKay with the McKay Interview. Hello, everyone. I don't move in the elevated circles of those who attend and buy the great auction houses of the world, but the business of art, fine art, beautiful jewellery, mega value, popularity, reputation, and the sheer theatre of the high-end international auction room interests me. Maybe I'm speaking for many of you listening today. I hope so, because my guest is a senior management member of one of the great names in the international auction business, a multinational corporation headquartered in New York City, but which was co-founded by one John Sotheby in London back in 1744. That makes it the world's fourth oldest auction house in continuous operation, predating both the republics of the United States of America and France, and established in Britain when George II was king. Nowadays, it's one of the world's great largest brokers of fine and decorative art, jewellery, real estate and collectibles. And it's a business that turns over close to $6 billion a year, from what I've read. That's a very significant number. David Bennett is worldwide chairman of Sotheby's prestigious jewellery division and regarded internationally as an authority in the field of precious stones and jewellery. He was once named among the top ten most powerful people in the art world by the international magazine Art and Auction, and relatively recently named by Bilon, the Swiss business magazine, among the top 50 most influential people in Switzerland. Hello David, many thanks for inviting me and listeners to World Radio Switzerland, to your offices here in the heart of Geneva. I've looked forward to this conversation and I have many questions for you in the style and manner of the unexpert but one very pleased to be in conversation with a master and practitioner. I hope you'll have patience with me and for my sake and for our listeners. Well, thank you very much. I'm uh, very flattered to have been asked to take part. Well, it's um, good to see you, David. Good to see <laughs> you too. We normally bump into each other on, on, railway, <laughs> on railway platforms. <laughs> to begin with, I realise that you're a specialist in precious stones and jewellery, but just give me a sense of the big picture. Has the market, I mean the state of the global economy, over the past few years been good to you and good for you and the people who use your services? And who are these people, your customers and clients? Are they corporations rather than wealthy individuals? Please give us a sense of the scene in which you work. Well, I think it's important to remember that Sotheby's is a, is a deeply, if I can say that, a deeply international organisation. And the people who participate in our auctions, whether in, pre, you know, in person or by internet or by telephone, uh, you know, come from all sorts of works of life and comprise many, many motivations for buying from, you know, at one end, the financial people you know, who, who, who want to buy as an investment to people who want to buy just because they love the thing, they're passionate about the object, um, and also people who are collectors, you know, want to are forming a collection, want to extend the collection. Um, we, we've had, a, you know, very good years. Um, certainly the last, I would say, eight or nine years have been uh, very good indeed. Um, we've seen a, a very large growth. Um, Southwest Geneva has uh, had some excellent years. We've seen, in, certainly in my world, in the jewellery world, in Geneva has been really the... In, in one sense, the worldwide centre of these sort of auctions of rare stones and rare jewels. And it's been a great pleasure to, to have been part of that. And, um, you know, up until recently, up until in fact 96, I think, 97, we were based in the Beau Rivage. And we'd been there for 20 years since the 
first sale of the Duchess of Windsor jewels. Um, but then, uh, two, two, just over two years ago, we moved to new premises, now in the right smack in the centre of Geneva, in the, in the financial and banking district. Um, in these wonderful premises, this is, I love this building, it's just a lovely... It's a magnificent old building, it's, yes. Isn't it? You know, it's sort of succession almost, sort of early, early 20th century building. Um, and so which means for the first time, actually, since I've been here, and I've been here, at Sotheby's, Switzerland, Sotheby's, Geneva, for 30 years. It's the first time we've managed to have the whole of Sotheby's in one building, which is it's important, great. yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it's... Uh, yeah. David, as a corollary to my first question, does the market in which you operate vary much according to bull or bear markets? I mean, in boom times compared with recessions, and are the rich and famous touched by recessions too, in your experience? Well, that's a, you know, <laughs> a lot of questions in one question. Um, you know, we're, as auctioneers, we're intermediaries. So the, the, the advantage of that is that wherever the market goes, in other words, whether it goes up or down, we're able to follow it, if you see what I mean, because we obviously we uh, earn our money on a commission basis. Um, I've seen many recessions in the 45 years I've been at Sotheby's, um, and... You know, we, we somehow, sometimes our best years have been in what might not have been called the best financial years elsewhere. It's a very resilient business. Um, I think because of this fact that, uh, you know, we're, we're taking a percentage as intermediaries between the buyer and the seller. Um, no, I think it's been, it's been very, very good. Um, do we do better? I mean, clearly, uh, in boom years... Uh, there is, I say, more money being spent, generally. Um, but as I say, there's, there somehow seems to be a sort of a, a cushioning effect that, um, for after all, we rely both on, on buyers and sellers. And sellers sometimes, you know, can be the, the famous things about divorce, you know, um, separation. Um, people sell for all sorts of reasons. In my world, in the jewellery world, a lot of our private sellers sell because they've inherited. Um, you know, great-great-grandmother, grandmother or mother's passed away and, you know, left the jewellery to the daughter or the son, maybe, and they decide they want to sell. And so that's, you know, quite a lot of our, our sellers are motivated by that. Some of them need to sell. Few actually need to sell, in my experience. Um... So, a recession can have, you know, all sorts of effects. You sort of partly answered my second question, which was whether your business is essentially reactive, and you said it, you said it is, but what I was curious to know about is how you know what will be valuable in the future as opposed to popular, or if in fact you can gauge that based on your experience, and when buying, how do you minimise risk as a broker, as a, an important mm. middleman, or is risk minimal anyway? in that position? Um, in the jewellery world, um, fashion does have, does have a time, timing to it. Um, what, what one of the things I've observed is that there's a space, a number of years in between when something goes out of fashion and then when it comes back in, into fashion again, it then becomes a, you know, a classic. And is that predictable, that space? Um, well, the space is getting shorter, I think. I mean, when I started um, in, in the early 1970s, after university, um, at that time, 
Art Deco diamond bracelets, which are now highly sought after and, you know, very fashionable, were unconsidered. And we would be selling them in the London sale room. And they'd be purchased by a member of the diamond trade, and immediately after the sale, all the diamonds would, would be popped out of them, and the metal would be melted down. It's almost unthinkable now, but they were so unfashionable. Nobody wanted to wear them. Nobody sort of thought they could possibly come back into fashion at that time. Within, by the early 1980s, they were very much in fashion. And, of course, what had happened was that a lot of the deco bracelets that were around, that number had been reduced because of this uh, lack of fashion. So anticipating what might become fashionable is, you know, something that for... That people who, who have a long-term view on investment is, is something very useful to be able to do. But that period, and they were, these bracelets were being made in the 1930s, so the 40 years later, they were completely out of fashion. By 50 years later, they were coming back into, into fashion and now are considered classic. And have personalities got anything to do with that? I mean, is this led by a particular woman or group of women that wear these beautiful things um, and, start, and yeah. start the new fashion again, or doesn't it really work like that? Well, it's interesting you say that because actually the answer to that is yes, and I'll explain to you why. Because there was a significant sale that Southern Geneva held in 1970... That's not 1987 which was arguably, and still is, you know, one of the greatest jewellery sales of all time. Was that was what? Duke of, the Duchess of Windsor. Yeah. Uh, she died in 1986. I was a relatively young... I was running Southwest London jewellery department at that time. There were two other colleagues in mine, and we, were, we made a pitch, as they say, for the collection, got it. I should guess I should add, for those listening who might not know who she was, she was the wife of the abdicated King Henry, King Henry, King Edward VIII. <laughs> Edward so VIII. Henry, Henry VIII, that's a Freudian he slip me that got me into that trouble. Is, Edward VIII, who abdicated. Exactly. Sorry, sorry to address Exactly. But well, she was a rather <laughs> notorious lady for anybody, I mean, you know, people, there probably aren't many left now, but people who, like my mother's generation, who were you know, getting married before the war. My mother's too, yeah. My yeah, I mean, the, the Duchess of Windsor was a very notorious figure, highly sort of, yeah, notorious, I suppose, because, you know, he... But nevertheless, Edward VII, Edward VIII, who's got me started, <laughs> got me started Edward VIII, you know, who gave up his throne for this woman, um, also lavished on her some of the greatest jewellery in the world at that time. And... Of course, it was for, for us. It was a sort of the an auctioneer's a gift from heaven, you know, formed by the man who gave up his the throne of England for love. I mean, that's a wonderful story, mm. isn't it? Great story. Uh, it's a unique great, story. Yeah, great jewelry. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, this this each piece, each item in the sale, unbeknownst to nearly everybody, apart from us, when we started first inspecting it. And I remember it so clearly, it's sort of engraven on my memory in this in the vault of the Banque de France in Paris. And you know, the first bracelet that came out was this wonderful ruby and diamond bracelet made in 1936. And on it was engraved, I think, we are ours now, or hold tight, I can't remember which one. But nobody knew that these little very, very personal messages were engraved on these jewels. From the then king, he hadn't been proud of it, he was a king. 
to the woman that he was giving up for, for whom he was giving up the throne. I mean, it's extraordinarily poignant. Yeah. And um, anyway, to, to answer your question, why am, I, why am I mentioning this? Is that that sale, which was the first of the mega sales, you know, there have been many Jackie Onassis, I mean, many, many, many of them since, um, was the first to be fully worldwide media type. Wow, you see with television and film. And, and it was something, yeah. it was the talk of the town. Even there were, when we had the, we took it all around the world. We took it, the first stop was New York, where we had an exhibition before the sale. And the queues were literally all the way around a block. Can you imagine <laughs> to get through to look at these jewels? Well, what year was this? 87. 87, yeah. yeah. And uh, it just completely, you know, there were all, all the jewellery was made between about 1932 and 19, mid-60s. Um, so it's very much a period that, that, that I'm talking about, you know, that they're just beginning to become really the thing. But my question is, and if, it's, if it sounds like the novice's question, forgive me, did he have it made for her, or was this jewellery which had been acquired through family? I mean, was it designed for her? No, this is what, this is, what is so interesting about it, and why, the, why it was such a pace-setting sale. Was it in order? I was responsible for the catalogue, which was no simple task, actually, because there was a huge amount of research in a very, very short period of time. <clears throat> and one of the things I did was I went to Paris to meet Jacques Arpels, of, of, who's now passed away, sadly, but of Banque de Arpels. And he was old enough to, to actually have been talking to, the, to, the, to, to, to Edward and Wallace in their premises in Paris before the war. And it was quite clear that Edward was designing these pieces with them and being heavily involved. Oh, he loved jewellery. Yeah. You know, it's very yeah. interesting, isn't yeah. it? And I got the feeling from talking to people like this that he, you know, the, the jewellery collection was very much put together as a joint effort. And the gifts that he gave her were very much of a connoisseur, somebody who really understood jewellery. And that's why the collection was so extraordinary. Um, the sale was an outrageous success. I mean, it was, it was beyond a success. We, was, we had so many people wanting to come to the sale that we asked the canton if we could, or the, you know, the, the administration of Geneva, if we could build a huge tent on the quay opposite the Beau Rivage, which we did. And inside it were, I think, three or four trees. It was so big, this thing. And that was not all, because then there was you know, a video link to another sale room at the Beau Rivage, a satellite link to New York and London. I mean, it was an extraordinary thing. This was this was all new groundbreaking stuff at that time because technology was auctioners had never really exactly, done that. Exactly, you know? fascinating. And that's what's so exciting. And I remember, I mean, one of the great events I will never forget is that we opened. I wasn't taking the sale, and uh, my colleague, late colleague Nicholas Rain, a wonderful job, took the sale. Um, and by the time we got to lot fifteen, we realised we had an extraordinary sale. And how many lots were there roughly? Oh, I can't 300. Three, oh, was, oh, I see. So 15. And um, lot 15, I remember vividly, was a, a diamond set dress set, you know, cufflinks, studs, and so on. Typical thing you wore uh, in the 1930s, made by Cartier, estimated, I think, 20 to 30,000 francs. And it made 50 times the estimate, made, mm-hmm. I think nearly a million. Yeah. And, you know, suddenly you had this fervour. To have, you know, of not only were the fervor to have these great jewels, but also have a part of this story, this part of this history, which is now perceived, part of this love story for many people. Um, it became an absolute 
thing. You must have, I have to have something from that sale. You know, so you had Elizabeth Taylor bidding by phone from her Malibu poolside to, I mean, making the most extraordinary competition for these items. Amazing. It was. It was a wonderful experience. So tell me, uh, you've told me now your most, that, that must be your most memorable moment. One but of t- them. One of them. <laughs> I was say, but I, I'd also written down here in my notes, uh, what else is etched in your memory and what were the surprises that sort of come back to you in your career? The things that you just didn't expect apart from... Well, there's quite a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, sort of unpredictable things. The thing is about... When you're up there taking an auction, I took my first auction in 1978, so it's quite 40-odd years ago. So you can imagine I've taken a lot of auctions of course, <laughs> since yeah. then. And, um, e- you know, even though you feel that you've seen it all, sometimes you haven't, you know. Uh, w- one of the... Um, I mean, the, the, the Windsor sale was extraordinary, but there have been many, many others. Personally, for me, I arrived, as I think I mentioned, in 1989 here to, to run the European jewellery business. And immediately I wanted to sort of make a mark. Um, and in the summer of 1990, I'd just been here about four months, five months or something, um, I had a phone call from a diamond cutter who, who said, look, in Antwerp, I've got wonderful stone I'd like you to see. So I said, okay. So I flew out, saw the stone. It was a 100 carat, the flawless diamond. So in other words, 100 carat, we can imagine it's a very large stone. The flawless means it was top color and top purity. It was just perfect, you know, it was a passion. And he said, so what do you think? Now, up until that point, nobody had ever tried. I don't think, I think the most that any diamond saw was six or seven million. This was going to be 14 million. So I said, what do you think? So I thought about it for a minute. You know how you just have that moment of intuition? You know, I thought, yeah, I'll take it. He looked slightly surprised. And I said, yeah, I just think it's a wonderful thing. Let's give it a go. So I remember I got home that night. My wife was in bed. And, uh, and, and she said, you seem worried, but what's the matter? I said, I think I've made the biggest mistake in my life. You know? So uh, he said, oh, can we always say that? No, I said, no, really, I've taken you know, risk. Nobody's ever made this you know, may take a chance like that. So anyway, so I managed to sleep. Um, two months later, roughly, or a month later, actually, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. You remember? Yeah, the markets all went... Oh, I mean, I was, you know, we were here. I mean, you were here, indeed. I was living here, yeah. Do you remember? I mean, my wife rings me up at work and says, David, there's no food in Migra. Noga Hilton was closed, yeah, basically. Yeah. The railway station had barriers yeah. up. Yeah, I mean, yeah. people forget. It was yeah. real panic. Yeah. Everybody get any of their, you know, their stocks in. I remember, yeah, very much. So I thought to myself, well, that's that then. So uh, forget it, you know, never mind. It was a nice try. Because the sale was in November. This was in, I think, October or August, maybe something. Yeah. So um, anyway, we start, we start the road tour, take it to a, I can't remember where it was, I think it was in, in the Far East somewhere. And uh, a certain gentleman comes in to look at it, and so I'm talking to him, and he's looking, and he says, oh, it's very beautiful, very beautiful. You know? So I said, oh, yes. I said, is this for your wife? He looked at me as if I was mad. <laughs> he said, no, it's not for my wife. So I said, um, so you think it's an investment? He said, that's not why I'm buying it. So I said, well, tell me, why are you buying it? He said, because how else can I put $14 million in my pocket? Mm. And Gosh. the interesting thing is that, if you think about it, there's nothing else that, you know, maybe you could get half for it in, in the most dire. But it's so portable and so, in a way, it's pretty liquid, isn't it? You know, yes. some part of the world. Yeah, some parts of the world, yeah. Um, and I'll just tell you a very brief thing about that sale, because cool. I got up 
take the sale. We sale went back quite well. Got to the last lot, the hundred carat. Ladies and gentlemen, a hundred carat diamond divorce. The model gets up there, puts it on, looks beautiful. And uh, bidding, so I knock it down. There's a chap right at the back of the room. This is in the days 30 years ago before we had what we call paddles now. Have you seen that? People are expected to bid with a paddle with a number on it. When they do this. In order to get the paddle, they've registered. Okay. So anyway, somebody's hand went up at the back. And uh, so I knock it down to this chap. And the next thing he does, he's gone out of the room. <laughs> so the press is there going up to the seat. So, oh, congratulations, congratulations. Who bought it? I didn't know who this chap was. Oh what I didn't know yeah. was that the buyer had sent an agent, or you know, an employee probably, to bid on his behalf. So there was that. You see, that's the unexpected. You don't know what's going to happen. You've got the high of, wow, world record price for a diamond. And then to, who bought it? Who was it? You know, what flashes through your mind? You know. And the deal was closed. It was still, Yeah, it was done. It was I mean, in deal, fact, yeah. so I, a colleague of mine rushed out found him just about to leave the hotel and uh, he said who he was and so forth and they gave the name of the thing. So there's always the unexpected. It's very nerve-wracking at first being up there. The more you do it, slightly less nerve-wracking. But um, the unexpected, I guess, is what keeps you on your toes. I can imagine. My guest today is David Bennett, worldwide chairman of Sotheby's Jewellery Division and we're in that famous auction house Geneva offices. Let's talk a little bit more about... Um, Precious stones. What is it in particular that really fascinates you about precious stones, precious jewellery, and and why did you start in that? What, what was it that really hooked you? Well, I'll tell you a secret. I wasn't really ever interested in jewellery before I started uh, working for Sotheby's. Um, very briefly, I did a, after university. I did philosophy at university, and then I did a, a year's training in all the departments at Sotheby's, largely because my father who was Victorian, really, um, born before your father, you know, <laughs> um, you know, thought that I wanted to go and make films. Uh, I still do, actually. And so he didn't have a very <laughs> positive view of that as a profession. Exactly. Well, he thought it was Hollywood. Yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> so he sort of cunningly introduced me to a friend of his who was a director of South of his blah, blah, blah. One thing led to another, and I ended up on this one year's training. And about seven months into that, there was the first oil crisis and London was working three days a week. It was 73, 74. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And it was a disaster. There sure. were no jobs suddenly. You know. mm. And so uh, this friend of my father said, look, David, there's a job come up in, in Jura. I said, Jura? Why? He said, look, listen to me. You Just take it. It's going to be a very difficult period. He was damn right. It became very difficult. Yeah. You need a job. You know? And he said, it's going to be great. You'll be traveling a lot. There'll be sales in Switzerland and all these other things. So I thought, yeah, okay. Yeah, maybe it's right. And so that's how I ended it. Now, can I ask you a, a question in particular about craftsman, craftsmanship, which I'd like to understand a bit better. Are today's craftsmen and craftswomen still able to produce work of exceptional quality and beauty? And are you personally confident about the future of beautiful jewelry? I mean, that's being produced today. Um, where are these skills, and who's producing this beauty? I'm curious to know. Well, the, I mean, the skills are still absolutely... They're still there. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, modern techniques, you know, involving lasers and so forth, have helped enormously. Um, you know, the most important thing is the inspiration. Um, we've got, you know, I think some wonderful stuff being made at the moment. I mean, you know, one, clearly one of the great, greatest jewelries of the last hundred years is Joel Rosenthal, works under the name of Jar, 
Um, Jar. Jar in Paris, J-A-R in Paris. Um, extraordinary, it's on the level of Lalique and all these great jewellers. Um, but every now and then one comes across something that is quite extraordinary. I mean, I've, you know, maybe, maybe isn't even signed, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but there's, so there's still great work being done, and the possibility of working with these metals and so forth is, is as good as it ever was. So know? you're confident about that? I am, yeah. And we talk a little bit about... Um, genuineness and authenticity in the business. How a great house like yours prepares itself and guards against the clever yet unscrupulous and the downright crooked. What goes on behind the scenes in your detective and investigative work that you can talk about publicly? I mean, how does that work in an important house like this? Well, in my world of jewellery, I mean, the uh, the fakes are, I think, probably slightly less of a problem than they would be in the... um, Paintings department, for example. Um, my and my close colleague Daniel Machetti have been, you know, both have been working in the business for 40 years. We've written works on jewellery together. Um, and spotting a fake is very often almost intuitive. You know, there's something you can look at something and think, well, that's not quite right. There's something you can't, you can't it's very difficult to put into words what isn't right about it. That's what's actually slightly frustrating for young colleagues because you're trying to explain to them that this just isn't right. And they say, well, what isn't right about it? And they say, well, look, just look at it. It's not right. It's kind and it of comes like, with time and experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... I think, you know, I think if you're... The wonderful thing about working in a great auction house is that it's the sheer volume of, 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 of for example, jewellery that you'll see in your career. I mean, it's, it's just phenomenal, you know. And it's jewellery, you know, as they say, from soup to nuts. You know, it's kind of like... Jewelry from a thousand dollars up to what's the most seventy-two million dollars stone we sold. You know. Coming from all over the world. All over the world, yeah. All dates, all periods. You know, people don't sort of differentiate themselves for, for periods, but basically, uh, Danielle and I have have specialised in jewelry from about seventeen fifty to the present day. Um, in terms of the stones, uh, that's another that's another subject altogether. You know, ever since. Uh, quite early on, <clears throat> coloured stones, particularly sapphires and rubies and emeralds, have been treated or heat-treated. The Romans used to heat uh, precious stones to change their colour. Um, in the old days, in, in, the, in the ancient world, onyx you know, was, was, was a sort of chalcedony. It was boiled with honey and the, to, 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 to colour it. So treatment of gemstones is not a new process, but it is a process that is now becoming, it becomes necessary for laboratories and chemical, and chemical uh, uh, analysis and also um, spectroscopy. You know. So there are laboratories, particularly in Switzerland, that deal with coloured stones. And of course for diamonds, you've probably read a lot about synthetic diamonds and so forth. There is the GIA, in Gemological Institute of America, um, that is able to detect these things. We uh, all my specialists that work for me worldwide are qualified gemologists, and um, you know, which which gives us at least a first step of, of the process. And if we have the slightest doubt, we'll send it to a laboratory. And tell me, a business like yours must have a unique perspective on reputation. Obviously, um, you've been guarding it for over three hundred years. Does modern digital technology give you any new reasons to be even more vigilant? And on guard. And could you give me some examples of where and why you have to be especially vigilant in these modern times? I'm just curious to know how the technology 
of today helps or in fact gives you reasons to worry in your business. As I'm not quite sure. You, you mean worry about what, though? Worry well, you about know, um, the reputation, authenticity, being sure that you have made the decision that's correct in judging the value or the the provenance, those sorts of things. Because t- and the reason I ask the question is, is technology is changing so rapidly. I'm always curious to see how it affects different kinds of industries. Well, I guess in my particular sector of, of what Sotheby's sells in jewellery, um, certainly I guess the 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 area that, that needs the closest watch is in gemstones, as I've said, you know, because um, new treatments of gemstones, new ways of enhancing the colour and so forth are constantly being pr- produced. So we have to keep keep an eye on that. Um, but the digitalization of the business has basically meant an immense expansion. Um, the, you know, all our sales now are also online. Mm which means that you know, it's an exponential growth in the number of people who can participate in a sale. As little as three years ago, I remember having only a few bids online. Now, you know, nearly every lot has bids, on, bids online. You know, so you're getting such a large public, and it's totally international. I mean, you can have a sale in Geneva that is viewed by people in, in, in Tokyo or in the United States, um, and they will participate. You know, now with modern technology you can sort of send three dimensional not three dimensional but moving photographs little films of each lot if if if, if the client likes it you know all of this is, has helped enormously in terms of the accessibility of what we're selling so it's been because a boom. the biggest it's problem of course is that you know people want to see <laughs> of course you can understand it before they see it before they buy it so sure. technology has helped massively for that in closing, why is Geneva special for you and Sotheby's? What's so special about this particular city? Well, I mean, it, you know, I've been here for 30 years. I'm now Swiss. I'm very proud to live in Geneva. I love Geneva. It's been very good for me personally. Uh, from Sotheby's point of view, it's been, well, it's principal, I suppose, in terms of the auctions, it's been jewellery and watches. I mean, at first we were selling in Zurich, and we moved to Geneva in 1980. And the effect of moving to Geneva was huge. I mean, <clears throat> the movement, and, you know, and that was largely, actually, I've forgotten to say, really, the story was that Geneva offered an absolutely first-class free port. So if people want to um, sell an important piece of jewellery or stone, they can send it to the free port, I can look at it, uh, before and decide whether to import it for sale, or they or or, or return it, and that um, really that type of facility uh, is not matched anywhere else in Europe, certainly. And last question, David. Can you tell us anything without telling us any trade secrets about imminent plans? Anything that we should look forward to? Those who can afford to look forward to it. In terms of uh, the business, your business, Sotheby's. Here in Switzerland. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I think we've made it fairly clear by moving to these new premises, you know, in, in the Rue Didet, in the centre of Geneva, that uh, we are, you know, investing in Geneva. Uh, it's been very good for us. I think as long as the sales continue to progress and to sell as successfully as they have up until now, I think we will 
continue here. Great. Many thanks, David, for Thank making you, time and answering all my questions. Thank so, you, Michael. Uh, my guest today has been David Bennett, Worldwide Chairman of Sotheby's Jewelry Division. Thank you, David. Thank you. That was The McKay Interview with Michael McKay. And don't forget, you can hear that interview again on our website, worldradio.ch.